welcome to a kind of a special episode of the Pantry Podcast. We opened up the podcast in the season with two standalone episodes. And the purpose of that was kind of like to set the stage and kind of introduce you to us. And I'm, I'm glad that we've had as many wonderful guests as we've had this season. I believe the, the count is uh, 14 guests in, in season one. Uh, but, you know, really great people, some great interviews. Uh, and we kind of wanted to, before we close out season one, which, spoiler alert, this is the final episode of season one. Uh, we kind of wanted to talk about how how the season went and, you know, what you can look forward to in season two. But we wanted to open this episode with a discussion about what's going on in Panjway today. Yeah, we were really fortunate to get a insider's glance, if you will, into what's going on in Panjway right now. What's really interesting is that we re-recorded a version of this maybe two, three months ago. And so much of uh, so much has changed, not only in the course of the podcast, but also in what's going on in Panjway and Kandahar at large that, you know, we had to basically circle back around and re-approach what's going on on the ground there. So, yeah, we recently talked to Chris Persons, who will be coming out in season two. Right. Yeah. Yep. He'll be yeah. season two. Mm. So and he was able to to shine a light on many things that we already either suspected or new, or have now proven to be a reality. So yeah. it's interesting. We'll take it back to, you know, after we left Afghanistan. So we, we left Sporwangar's unit in 2013, I'm sorry, 2012, and we handed it over to Bravo Company 138, who closed down mm-hmm. Sporwangar, handed it off to the Afghans. Uh, and 138 fought really hard uh, throughout the rest of that fighting season. They operated out of, I think, Masamgar and Zangabad uh, for the rest of that deployment. And then uh, eventually it all got handed over to uh, to the Afghans, Masamgar, Zangabad, all of it. Sometime around 2014, there were a lot of news articles that came out that there was a villager uprising in Panjway and that the villagers were kicking the Taliban out and that they had armed themselves and that, the, and that basically overnight that uh, Panjway was peaceful and it was this shining example of how the Afghan government was able to kick the Taliban out of an area and control it. And we knew it was bullshit. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like we, we, you're reading these stories, and, and it, it it reads really well. And if you're not if you've not been there, and you've not been on the ground there, you haven't interacted with these people, you might believe it. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, this is an inspiring story. You know, everyone's got guns over there, so I could totally believe that they would be able to do that. And but the answer, to qu- <laughs> no, they can't. Yeah. Um, and anybody that knew better knew that that probably wasn't what happened. Um. And I know my suspicion all along was that there was some sort of secret deal negotiated between the, the leaders in Kandahar and the, the Taliban shadow government. And the, the long story is complicated and involves tribal families and local politics and American politics as they intervene with Kandahar politics and everything else. But the short version is basically that you know, there was exactly that happening. Yeah. You know, there was a secret deal going down. There was a handful of powerhouses within Kandahar that kind of come to a t- series of acceptable terms with the Taliban in regard to how they wanted things to be conducted around there. Um, so that kind of set the stage for the next evolution of what's happening. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and to be fair, I mean, whatever, if, again, we have some sort of inside knowledge that there most likely was a deal, but I haven't seen a piece of paper or anything, right? Yeah. So, like, to, yeah, to some degree, it's, it's still speculation. 
um, but informed speculation, mm. <laughs> <laughs> like hearing it from people that would know. Yeah. And but to the credit of whatever that deal was, it worked for six years. Um, mm. When I was there in 2017, there was no fighting in Panjway, none, zero. Um, it was considered a safe area. We were still told not to fly too low over it, but it, there was there was there's nothing there was nothing going on out there, you know. And Chris Chris brought a really good point up when we talked to him. He's like, because he was there in 2019, yeah. And he's like, I'm hearing the the governor of Kandahar telling me that Panjway is safe, but in the same breath, he's telling me that he won't drive there. He'll only fly there. Mm. And that he's like, and to, to him, that said a lot about yeah. the the situation that was on the ground there. Yeah, for sure. And I think you know, in that uh, wave of good news coming out of Panjway, I actually remember it was very soon after we got back. I mean, I'm talking. I think I was in school and things, and I saw a news article from NPR of all places, and it was a picture of a striker driving through the uh, the bazaar. It's like how Panjway had calmed down and how it was peaceful and all this stuff. And I just, I couldn't quite believe it. You know, my yeah. hackles were raised essentially mm-hmm. on the the validity of that proposal, that statement. Yeah. And uh, it all started to fall apart in early 2019. Which is crazy that they had that much time. You know, I mean, that's years of basically the Taliban, at least from our our perspective and our conjecture that we'll, you know, we'll make here. Taliban having time to gather up, organize, consolidate, all those things. Well, and it's important to know that just because in Panjway there was no fighting, there was fighting in Zari, there was fighting in Maiwan, there was fighting in Tarankau, there was fighting in Helmand, mm. there was uh, fighting in Shawalikot, there was fighting in Kalat. Like, pretty much everywhere but Kandahar City itself and Panjway, mm. there was fighting. So, like, even in, like, an uninformed observer can look at that and be like, okay. That area is the, the homeland of the Taliban. You know, that's their home country. Yeah. So, if there's any place in southwestern Kandahar and southwestern Afghanistan that they want to low-key own, essentially, it's going to be that, that chunk of territory around the, uh, the Argandab River, you know? Yeah. And and the, the pa- lower Panjway is a little bit more viable than Zari. Is that the Highway 1 doesn't run through Panjway. Yep. Uh, at least not through the Horn of Panjway. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Horn of Panjway provides direct access to the Reg, which is a direct route for smuggling. Yeah. So there's no American forces on the ground. The, An- the Afghans aren't going to, they're not patrolling the Registan Desert. By yeah. by having like that secret control of the Horn of Panjway, they, they basically control the, the supply routes. Mm-hmm. But as I was saying, it, it, it started to collapse in 2020, not 2019, it's, it was to early 2020, when the, the police chief for Kandahar was assassinated. Once that happened, we started to get reports right around the summer uh, of last year that like, hey, there's, there, there would be like a car bombing in Panjway, or there would mm-hmm. be an attack on a checkpoint, really low-key stuff, and you'd have, you had to follow like the local Afghan news to see it. And it started to pique my attention last summer that I would see that these random attacks that were normally stuff that would happen like north of the river or my wand or Tarankout uh, was starting to happen in Panjway. And I was like, hmm. And then it was probably what, October, November timeframe that we started getting messed. After we started the podcast, started the podcast, we had announced it. You know, we're building up the social media pages. We started getting messages from uh, locals in Panjway. Yeah. And more than one, like a few 
of the local nationals there in Panjway that reached out to us. Yeah, and, and the gist of those were uh, the Taliban are taking over. Yeah. Um, and I know we, we, we basically hinted that they already had control, but again, some of our contacts have basically said that once that police chief died, and the Taliban kind of took advantage a little bit with those little attacks, that Afghan forces actually started to go into Panjway more. They kind of they kind of broke the agreement. They started mm-hmm. doing things that they weren't supposed to be doing, which was like basically leaving their bases. Um, and so the fighting was starting to kick off. And so whereas the Taliban did control the area before, now that the uh, the agreement was kind of starting to be null and void, Long apart, yeah. um, they, were, they were starting to fight again. It's also important to note that last year, and even up in, I, think, I can't remember when it was signed, I think it was December, you had the, the Doha negotiations in Qatar which was where the Trump administration, the Afghan government, and the Taliban were negotiating a ceasefire, essentially. Uh, basically a post-war um, framework. Slashing of the pie. Sort of, yeah. <laughs> Mo- mostly it was basically uh, the terms of a ceasefire and for the American withdrawal from Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And what kind of came out of that was that the Taliban were basically... The, the ceasefire was Taliban don't mess with American forces. The Taliban don't mess with district centers. They don't mess with major cities because it's all a question of optics. So mm-hmm. the Taliban can take over checkpoints in Panjway, and it's not really going to make big news. It's bad for the people there, but it doesn't make the government look bad. When they take yeah. a district center, when they take a city, it makes the government look bad. So the, uh, the deal that came out at Doha was that you can do whatever you want as long as you don't take a district center, you don't take a city. American forces aren't going to mess with you. They're no, they no longer can support Afghan forces um, or limited support or something like that. To, something to the point where the Taliban felt they could do whatever they wanted um, mm-hmm. in, you know, in the remote areas. And as a result, suddenly Panjo was back on the table. Um, as long as they didn't take the district center, which still to this day, they have not taken the district center. They have the bazaar, they have Massimkar, they have Sangabad, they have Spurwangar, they have the entire <laughs> and, Horn of Panjway. Yeah, and just but to they, give people a, a conception of what this means is that the Afghan government essentially holds a space that's about the size of two football fields. If even that. It's a little bit bigger than that, I think. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, but it's, 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 it's basically just, it's, a base. It's a small base, you know, in the middle of, of the Horn of Panjway. That uh, it's more or less the only ground that the Afghan government has there. Yeah, and they and they have, um, you know, I, I, they must have some limited access to Route Hyena to get to Kandahar City to like get food and supplies. Yeah, I'm sure. In, sorry, in the 2020 or so is when that all happens. So we kind of jumped ahead, and we're going to jump back. So we're Tarantinoing this description here. <laughs> so I apologize. Uh, around November 2020. There was a major initiative by the Taliban where they they started to seize all these cops. So Sparwangar, Mushan, Zangabad, uh, Masamgar, all like because all these bases were still Afghan held up until November. Um, probably what happened is the Taliban probably walked up to the the gates of these bases like, hey, we're going to attack in twelve hours. If you're here, we're going to kill you. And the Afghan National Army probably just like walked off and left everything. That's that's kind of standard wares. Mm. Um, these days because they don't have the resources to fight them. They don't have mm. our air support. They don't have our advisors. They don't have our ODAs out there with their miniguns. Like, they're, they're by themselves now. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they don't have the heart for it in most cases. Um, so they just easily overrunning these, these bases. And that was in November. 
Um, then we started to get word of Afghan forces. There was an article. Um, they abandoned 200 checkpoints in Panjway. Basically, every, every police checkpoint along Route Hyena, the police and the, and the army pulled out. Mm-hmm. And that was around the time we started to get even more messages saying, we, our lives are in danger. We need to get out. Um, we can't even buy food because the bazaar is shut down. And we can't go to Kandahar because the Taliban control the roads. Um, which was super disheartening to get these messages because the, the, the individual sending them had this belief that we could do something. Yeah. They thought that we were affiliated with the, the Canadian or American, most of them thought we were Canadian for some reason, um, <laughs> but thought that we were affiliated with the government, we could get them out. Um, and, you know, what do you, what do you say? I mean, I tried to be yeah. supportive, like, uh, we support your cause, like, we know, we understand, we're going to tell your story, but we don't have any ability to get you out. Um you know, I, like I even told a couple, I was like, you know, if you, if you really <laughs> are in that bad of a spot, fight, you know, pick, mm. pick up, a, pick up a rifle and fight. I mean, I, I can't, I can't, I can't do anything for you. Yeah. Um, and that, that sucks because a lot of these are, you know, former cooks or laundry people or interpreters and stuff that, that supported American and Canadian forces. And now they're left out to dry. And that's, that's not our doing. That's, that's a whole other podcast. Um, about our responsibility when we, we go into these places. But hmm. th- and that was around November. And ever since then, all the word we get is just, it's just worse and worse. Yeah. It's just unraveling, you know? Yeah. And I feel like in the past, what, two weeks, it's gone from kind of spiking on the radar to being like an actual legitimate headline. I mean, it was literally the other day and was it the New York times? I think. New York times. Yep. Yeah. And they were talking about how, Taliban have essentially taken Kandahar and they're literally trying to take Kandahar city right now. And it's just mm-hmm. a matter of time until they're knocking on the doors of calf. So we, we actually had an interview, not like for the podcast, but more of like an informal thing to kind of get some info about this stuff. Um, with the former chief of police of Panjway, um, Gen- I can't remember his name off the top of my head. I think it was general, uh, Sultan, Hakimi sounds familiar. Mm. Um, if I get it wrong, then I'll whatever. But uh, he's he's pretty infamous. You've you've seen pictures of him. He's been in articles. You know he he was very uh, flamboyant in terms of like showing that he was in control. And there's an infamous picture of him sitting um, in a in like a sure room with like an American M4 that he's super <laughs> super proud of. Um, he got kicked out of his role around the same time that. Um, that other general got assassinated because they wanted to give that general's brother control of pants. So it's all all very political, but he got ousted and replaced by somebody who was less competent, which is another piece to this whole puzzle. Hmm. So we wanted to talk to him. We gave him the opportunity. He was willing to talk to us. Uh, And like the day of the interview, uh, we get a message like, hey, I." it it was the interpreter that contacted us, and he was like, "Uh, I'm sorry, we have to cancel. you know, the generals are busy. The Taliban are in the city. <laughs> what? Um, and I guess what happened is the, the Taliban made a push into Kandahar city. They made it uh, almost to the uh, prison in Kandahar, which if you've kept up with current events in Kandahar or Afghanistan the last you know 15 years, has been the site of some major prison breaks in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, that, and that is where most of the fighters that are captured in uh, the south and west of the country are housed. So there's a lot of really high-ranking Taliban, a lot of really bad guys housed in that prison. 
and uh, you know they were they were trying to get to him. They were trying to take over the prison and, and release their buddies. As far as I know, they haven't they haven't succeeded yet. But the outcome of that conversation with um, the interpreter who was sitting next to the general, supposedly. <laughs> Maybe we're being taken for a ride here. Mm. Uh, was that you know their their thought was Kandahar could fall at any moment. Yeah. Uh, and for those who've been to Kandahar and Kandahar Airfield is a little bit south of the city, so the, the Kandahar Airfield isn't like in the city. So the city could theoretically fall, and and CAF stay within military yeah. control, and it would be very difficult for them to get too far into CAF. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they could absolutely, I mean, they could make it a nightmare. They could. I mean, that's the thing is like, they could, um, they could probably never take the first ring of security. But also for folks who, you know, don't really understand how this works in these big massive bases like CAF or Kabul or any of the fobs in Iraq, you had rings of uh, concentric circles of security. So the outside circle was usually local forces, you know. In the case of CAF, it's Afghan army, I think. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know, honestly. Yeah, probably. But, yeah. And then, well, well, we, well, when we were there, it would be like Afghan army. Then it would be like random NATO forces. And then it would be like a private security thing. And so it's way outside of the, you know, the, the, the actual guts, the operational guts of a place. But, you know, even then, it's totally feasible that the Taliban could be launching attacks on that outer ring of security. I mean, it's happened before. Yeah. I mean, when we were there in 2012, the Taliban breached security at Camp, uh, not Camp, um, Fort, at Bastion mm-hmm. in, in Helmand. And they destroyed yeah. three quarters of the Marine Corps' Harrier fleet. The whole <laughs> fleet. <laughs> I mean, which was eight aircraft. But still, I mean, they destroyed yeah. six Harrier jets. That's crazy. I mean, it's not. I mean, the but the thing is, we've there's always been vulnerability, and and this isn't we're not violating opsec. These are things that have been reported, so we're not we're not telling you what the security of CAF is. Um, There have been penetrations of these big bases many times. Like there's so many local nationals that work on the bases. You know, they're not not, they don't have 800 foot concrete walls or anything. They Mm -hmm. can be penetrated. But typically what happens is they get in and there's a fight and then they push them out. Yeah. Um, and like you mentioned, you know, there's, there's so many different, there's different compounds on CAF and there's, diff, there's the airfield and then there's, you know, where people live and there's all these different secure zones and they know how to defend themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, Which I wonder what it looks like now too versus 2012. I mean, things are in full swing, you know. Well, I mean, the main thing that's changed since then is there's a lot of stuff that was on the north side of the airfield that's not there anymore. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of compounds, a lot of hangars. There's an entire like ramp, like there's an entire runway that was being used in 2012 that's not being used anymore. That was where all yeah. the helicopters were up north. Um, so and there was a huge infrastructure to support that. Like you know, lot, there were two or three defects up there, way more housing, and that's all gone now. Mm-hmm. Um, to the south, like you know, the the boardwalk is still there. Uh, the big PX was still there as of 2017. I don't know if it's still there now. I would guess that probably has been shut down now. It's probably something smaller now. Mm. And the boardwalk is probably finally closed down. There's not very many, you know, and again, we're not violating OPSEC. This is in the news. There's less than 2,500 Americans in, or American soldiers in Afghanistan as a whole. Mm. So there's, there's not a whole lot of them there. 
uh, there's not a whole lot to support in, in Kandahar. So a lot of people that are there is Apache helicopters and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, F-16s and um, Afghan attack aircraft and helicopters, um, special operations, you know, that kind of stuff. Like the people that are there are the ones that are best suited to protect it uh, if yeah, it were to get attacked. Sure. But we're going way down the rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> but that's kind of where it's at right now. Essentially, yeah. you have you have Kandahar City is the last bastion. Kandahar City and Kandahar Airfield are the last bastion of, you know, Afghan forces outside of the district centers that are all surrounded by Taliban. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and it's essentially setting the stage for the next evolution of what's going to happen in Panjway and Kandahar at large, you know. Yeah. Which, I mean, this will come out before May 1st. Uh, which is good because that's that's the day. That's mm-hmm. the day when the history of Afghanistan is going to change. Mm. Uh, because per the Doha agreement, that's when we're supposed to have all our forces out of Afghanistan. Mm. And I think it was two days ago, President Biden said, nope, we won't be out by the first. Mm. Uh, he said, we're going to be out this year, but not by the first. Uh, which means we probably have a pretty bloody summer ahead of us for the our Afghan counterparts. Yeah. Um, because that... if. The Taliban feel like the, we haven't honored our end of the agreement. They're no longer going to feel like they're bound to honor their end of it. Mm-hmm. So I would I would expect if uh, there were Vegas betting odds that they would be pretty low ratio for uh, for the loss of Kandahar in the month of May. Yeah, yeah I'd say you're probably right, man. But... So with all that negativity <laughs> being said, <laughs> I mean, what, what what does that really mean? You know, you know, this is I know a lot of people have expressed. Uh, I don't know, not necessarily like concern, but just kind of feel like what we did wasn't worth it. And this was a big part of our, uh, that conversation that we had on mm-hmm. the first iteration of this uh, recording was that a lot of a lot of people feel that because Spermangar has fallen and Panjway has fallen, um, that what we did was meaningless or something. And I, I, I really want to push back against that. Yeah, for sure, man. I mean, we, we've actually kind of spun the wheels on that a little bit in earlier episodes, which is kind of why we've decided to record this because yeah. we covered that same conversation over the course of what, three or four interviews with guys just talking about this concept of whether it was worth it or not. And the kind of baseline that we landed on was that it was worth it to the extent that we got to experience what we got to experience and it was worth it to the extent that the people that made it home in one piece or made it home at all, made it home, survived it, got through it, pushed on and got the push into these, you know, new and interesting lives. And I think, um, you know, we, we've, we struggled a lot, I think with this dichotomy of how much am I obliged to the bigger picture and how much is the bigger picture way beyond our control? And like when you're just a grunt squeezing triggers on the ground in Afghanistan, that big picture is many, 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 many layers removed from the agency and the capacity that you possess. And so the question of was it was it worth it or not, it's kind of a futile thing to pull the threads on, I guess, it in, is, in many yeah. ways. Yeah. I mean, because you have to remember... We were never there to seize and hold terrain indefinitely. Like at no point were we like, "Hey, if we hold Spurwangar, the war in Afghanistan is over." That was, <laughs> nev- that was never true. Um, yeah, and we knew it. It was, it was key terrain, but it wasn't. It wasn't the key to Afghanistan, and we weren't. You know, it wasn't 
this wasn't World War II where like, hey, we have to push the Nazis back to, to Berlin so that mm-hmm. we can order a ceasefire. Like, it wasn't like that. We, we knew that we were, we were biding time. Um, it, this was 2012. We were 11 years into this war. Like, we, you have to understand, we weren't there. We really weren't even there to defeat the Taliban. No, not after that. I mean, starting in, you know, let's say a year after the invasion. So by the time October of 2002, it wasn't about defeating the Taliban anymore. You know, the Taliban were no. done by that point. Well, yeah, and then they... They staged that they, comeback. Yeah, then they, <laughs> they, they were the ultimate Cinderella story. Yeah, you know? abs- absolutely. Because they got um, dominated and they came back and became a well, thorn in the side they, of a global They adapted. Superpower. You know, and, and there's a, there was an excellent quote, and I hate to give, you know, a, a TV show um, credit for such a good quote, but this was a good one. <laughs> it, it was talking about this exact thing. It was, uh, mm. it was Homeland. It was the final season of Homeland. And the, the leader of the Taliban said... Uh, we're strong enough not to lose, yeah. but we aren't strong enough to win. Uh. Um, and it's it's absolutely true. You know, mm-hmm. the Taliban were never going to beat the United States. And I don't care no. what anybody says, the Taliban no. was not beating. And then knock down, drag out. Yeah. They didn't stand a chance. Not a chance. Yeah. They, they never, like, because if you have a guerrilla force and you, you know, take out a, a several thousand, let's say, of your of your enemy's forces, but they take out hundreds of thousands of yours and yeah. like they force you to run around in civilian clothes and hide all the time. You're not winning, mm-hmm. but you're not losing either. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, this, it's this weird dichotomy. So uh, it, that just, it just kind of spoke to me that going back to the discussion about whether it was worth it, we weren't ever going to beat the talent. You can't beat an insurgency no. the you way that we were fighting. ideology and you can't beat you know, you can't be a conviction that people have, you know, you're just not going to. Well, I think it was, it was uh, David Petraeus when he did his study on counterinsurgency. He said mm-hmm. it takes at, at least nine years to defeat an mm-hmm. insurgency. And if you look at Iraq, that's basically what it took to defeat Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Mm-hmm. But what happened in, in Iraq, we, we thought we had it handled. We hastily withdrew. And we created a power vacuum for something worse to come in, which fortunately ISIS was not an insurgency. They had no interest in being an insurgency. They thought that they were a frontline force and that they were going to take over. And they got their, they got, they, they got, got corrected. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were, they were corrected on that. Um, but, you know, when you talk about an insurgency, you can't, we were, we were fighting a half-ass war. In 2012, mm-hmm. we wanted to win the insurgency, but we weren't employing the methods that, you know, very smart people, including Petraeus, you know, Stan yeah. McChrystal, all these guys that had helped win the insurgency in Iraq. Um, they, we weren't listening to what they said. We weren't doing it. Um, so we were fighting that war with one hand tied behind our backs. So to look and be like, oh, it wasn't worth it. It was like, well, you got home. You know, as many people as possible you know, got home. We, we were, we weren't fighting to win the war in Afghanistan. We're fighting for each other. Yeah. Um, and as long as you can frame it in the perspective of, I was, we were fighting for each other so that we could get home. And most of us got home. Mm-hmm. That, that is the, the best you can do. And to close it out, you were, you corporal, private specialist, snuffy, whoever, you were not there to win the war in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. You were there because you had an MOS 
that had a job, you were told to go there, you were given a job to do, and you did it. Mm. That's what you were there to do. And if you did that, then you should come back with no regrets. Yeah, for sure, man. I think that's that's the big takeaway. And, you know, I've said it before in an earlier episode, but, you know, it's almost cliche to be like, I fought for my, the dude by my side. But when you get it down to the brass tacks, that's just the reality of it because you didn't have anything else to fight for. You know, like what you, what you fought for was not an ideology. It was not, it was like the antithesis to what the Taliban was there for. You know, they didn't care about the Kaaba's other side because they'd send them out to get massacred by the Americans. You know, go shoot at them dudes and then when the helicopters come, keep shooting, you know. Yeah. But for us, it was it was the other side of the coin in that we we had to fight for each other and to just like like I said, that desperate scrap. It was a scrap to survive to get back. Yeah. And to try and, and balance the complexities and the intricacies of our mission and what we were there to do and with our personal nuances and individual feelings in in combination with our obligation and our love and our determination to protect those around us and to fight for those that were there with us. Well, I should say they fought for us. (laughs) Us, <laughs> I was about to say, your English teacher would be so disappointed in you right now. <laughs> but no, no I mean, man. despite it being the longest run on sentence in history, you're absolutely correct. <laughs> you know, there's there's so much more at play than than simply, you know, I fought for the guy beside me, or I was there to serve my country, or I was there to keep the, you know, the enemy from like. There's so much more than that, and yeah. You know, if if you can walk away saying, okay, I, that was my job and I did my job, mm-hmm. good. And you know what? There's a lot of you that didn't do your job and you got to live with that. Yeah. You know, some of you didn't do your job. Um, but if you did your job, you shouldn't have that is it worth a conversation. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, not, it's not relevant. Yeah, for sure. But I think um, one of the things that's helped us, at least me, you know, I can't speak for you, Curtis, but in terms of the conversation of was it worth it was just the conversations we've got to have with guys in the past, you know, few months of working on this first season of the show and reconnecting with guys and having these conversations. And it's been a a slow dawning on me personally to realize that that was obviously an influential and pivotal part of my life about reconnecting with the guys that really were there with and, that we went through all this crazy shit with, it was really, really valuable to me to, to not only reconnect with that space and that time, but also to like to find an inherent value in it, you know? Yeah. And so I think like one of the great privileges of this podcast, and I would say before we started, if you would ask me that question of whether it was worth it or not, I probably would have said, man, probably fucking not. But over the course of this, I began to wonder, like, you know, maybe it actually was to an yeah. extent, you know? Yeah, and, you know, we I, – I can't echo your feelings enough that this has been a privilege um, mm-hmm. for me to have been able to have, you know, Matthew Kohler, uh, Tom Evans, Eric Clark, you know, Mayo Perez here uh, mm-hmm. to get the opportunity to, to go to Washington, D.C. and tour the White House with Brian Kitching and yeah. – um, <laughs> You know, and even even for the interviews that weren't in person or didn't involve a, 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 a 
tour of the White House, just be able to see these people and have conversations with them, um, candid conversations where everyone's kind of opening up and being completely honest and being mm-hmm. and offering introspection beyond just telling war stories has been super, super rewarding. Yeah, for sure, man. I mean, same here, having Nance come up and Smothers and uh, being able to see, like, when you had the guys come to see you, it's like a different dynamic and everything. But even the remote interviews, like, just, just seeing their faces, hearing their voices and things like that has been really, really cool because it's allowed me to, like, not really, not really sill away these things but it's more like I've, I've allowed myself to progress the narrative if you will and so i'm no longer stuck in the because you know people that know me well and um you know like you and others have I've, I've laughed at myself many times on the idea of doing a podcast about my military service <laughs> but you know this is not in my norm to sit around and talk about this stuff and like i went through seven years of school and most of my classes, I went an entire semester, and nobody even knew I was a veteran, much less a combat veteran who has served in Afghanistan. And so it's been good for me to reincorporate the value that is kind of underlying in our experiences into my own day-to-day outside of just the kind of the horridness or the negative aspects of what we saw, but to harness that positive aspect. Like we, we talked to Avery Johnston and when we talked to, at the end of his episode, one of the things that really stuck out to me was he said to, um, you know, take away from all these experiences, the positive that's in it. And there's a lot yeah. of positive stuff that's out there. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's interesting you mentioned not feeling like you can talk about this stuff. Um, I feel like giving everyone the opportunity to have this platform to, to finally just talk about it yeah. has been, it's been rewarding all around. And what was interesting was that even though I, I was still in the army for you know six years after after Panjway, you still don't talk about it. Like you don't you don't mm-hmm. go back you don't go to a new unit and tell war stories. At least if you have if you have any semblance of decency, you don't go yeah. to your new unit and start telling war stories about your last deployment. And the further it goes along, um, you know you just don't talk about it at all. And people they don't they don't even know you went. Yeah. Um, because it just never feels appropriate to talk about those experiences. Um, and I know for me, like when I, I, when I switched over and I, I moved on and, um, I had a different job and you know, what, what, what I did as an infantryman was really relevant and important to my job, but I wasn't the kind of person that was like, Oh, look what I did when I was an infantryman. This makes me a good pilot. It's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it helps, but it's not, there's not automatic correlation. And, you know, when they, when they found out what I had done and what I'd been through, which, you know, everyone has a ERB and an ORB, so it, it comes out eventually. <laughs> yeah. um, and then you start to explain, you know, why you have this and why you have that. Then, you know, then those stories kind of come out naturally. But, you know, and another aspect of it is guys that are in now that were, that were on that deployment, they're surrounded by people that have not and probably never will deploy. Yeah. You know, so you don't, exactly. you don't you don't go around telling all these people war stories, and then um, people just feel terrible. You're like, oh, yeah. I'm glad you had that great deployment. I'm gonna be doing another rotation <laughs> in NTC in three months. You know, that's the thing is, if you're still in and you're working alongside guys that are just like doing their job, respect that and be cool with it, and don't lord it over them, and because you don't have any right to the fact that you just got kind of 
put into a circumstance in a, in a time and space, like we've said before, and that'll probably be a continual thread throughout the rest of this podcast is just own it, be cool with it. And, you know, if somebody joined the military with like ambition and interest and they wanted to do right by it, then recognize that and, and allow them to celebrate that, yeah. you know, just because somebody didn't deploy or didn't have a combat deployment or didn't have a combat deployment as harsh as yours. doesn't mean that their time in service or their, their military service isn't any less valuable than yours. Yeah. And that was, um, that was another th- theme that's come up quite a few times. It's like, you're not special. <laughs> yeah, you're really you know, not. And, and, and what's interesting is the more we talk about this deployment and the area in general and deployments before and after, Panjway was unique. It was one of probably, one, you know, right up there with Helmand and the Kunar in mm. unique, very, very, very dangerous fights. So mm. there's definitely a sense of pride in having served in that area. But you also have to remember at the end of the day, you know, thousands of people died in Afghanistan. Yeah. You know, thousands of people died in Iraq. You know, everybody has a unique experience. Everyone has a traumatic experience. Everyone, you know, so many people saw shit. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't want people to be like, oh, well, there's a podcast about Panjway and about my unit. So we must be really special. We're not. We no. We just happen to be in the time and place and go. I think yeah. we were a special unit, and I think we we have a special connection. And I think that the way that we handled that deployment was special. Um, mm. But our simple being there in a time and place wasn't anything special. We just, just yeah, we lucked exactly. out. Really, we, yeah, we got lucky, and we got the deployment that most people wanted. Yeah, and we we paid the price for that. <laughs> we did. Yeah, we did. But yeah, I, I, I would reflect that sentiment uh, very much so because there's nothing special about us and that it's just needs of the army. Like the army needed bodies to be in a place and we just happened to get picked for that. Well, I know one thing that you've said it many times uh, and we've said it privately plenty. I think we said on the podcast a few times is that we had it um, worse than most. In terms of our experiences, but not as bad as some. Yeah, certainly. Um, and that that some is a significant portion. It is. You know, you're talking yeah, I mean, cops good. that got overrun. You're talking yeah. mountain bases that got into firefights every single day. Yeah. It's humping over mountains. And you're talking platoons in you know, yeah, in Baghdad that lost like seven dudes to IED blasts. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a good portion. Yeah, I mean, so you have to. You, everyone does this, and it's okay to be like, well, where where did my experience stack up? to, to mm-hmm. other people's it's okay to wonder that um and maybe you know through the course of this podcast you get an idea as you talk to people if we talk to people from different eras and stuff but just know that it doesn't fucking matter it, <laughs> it doesn't matter, matter if they had it better or they had it worse or you had it better you had it worse you know when you were there did it fucking suck yeah yeah it sucked man. yeah and it was yeah. hard and you were fighting for your life so what the fuck does it matter that they fought harder for their life yeah or if they fought less for their life who cares <laughs> you're not special but yeah, man. you deserve you know the honor of having said i did fight i did my job so it's it's a weird like double-edged sword where no you're not fucking special but you're kind of special. but you kind of are yeah. <laughs> you're kind of you're kind of special well that you know that goes back to that dude
like develop an understanding of it and really come to like a fulfilled and, and really thought out understanding of it instead of just throwing shit against the wall, you know, which is a lot of people do because they come back from something like a military deployment or a, or a combat deployment. And that's like the one thing. And so they drive that as far as they can take it instead of taking that step back, allowing a little bit of introspection and thinking, okay, like what was it actually like? What was the reality of the situation? You know, and that not so much, how does it compare? How does it stack up? But like, what did it mean for me? What did it mean for us? Yeah. And what were the kind of implications of that over the course of my life and, you know, the rest of my time in the military or whatever, whatever the lens that you have to view it through is, you know. And that's what's been the most rewarding about season one so far. Definitely. Is that we're getting to see all these people that we fought so hard with next to, alongside of, below, um, and see where they are in their lives now, what they've, what they've made of themselves. And when you see... You know, it may be a little annoying to hear the kid crying in the background, but every time it happens, it it, it kind of makes me smile mm-hmm. because that that's a family that has a father, and that's a, um, you know, that's a life that somebody has that they have moved on from. And I've I'm continuously impressed with how well guys have moved on from their experiences, and they've they have taken what happened to them, and they have you know moved forward. And I can't wait to find more examples of it because it's it's I think it's the most rewarding part other than just like the personal like pleasure of getting to see my friends and talk to my friends that I I served with to see that they're doing well. Certainly, man. And I think that's the benefit of having some time, you know? Yeah. And we, we've talked about it before about how if we'd done this in 2000, well, I would not have done it. (laughs) Yeah. And to be perfectly honest, uh, if I was pursuing the things that I thought I was going to be pursuing this time right now, I would not be doing it right now. <laughs> We'd be lucky to work on the book right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's, but you know, that's okay. That's something you know. I appreciate a lot. And, you know, for those that um, didn't watch like the introduction video or don't know Luke and I very well, this, this really just kind of happened because of a kind of a perfect synchronization of a gap yep. in each of our lives. Yeah. You know, we've talked about writing the book for years. We've talked about even like doing recording interviews, not necessarily for a podcast, but trying to get talk to people to get these stories, which is essentially what we're doing anyway. We're just publishing them now and cleaning mm-hmm. up a little bit, making them a little bit PC. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the power of editing is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I, I left my job and decided to pursue my school full time um, online. <laughs> So I had, you know, tons of time and, uh, you know, I've been fortunate to make some good financial decisions. So I have the freedom to, to just do school Yeah. and Luke, you know, through a crazy turn of events, um, has some time off from his academic pursuits, which he's going to be resuming soon. Um, while his wife pursues her PhD. So like Mm -hmm. this, we kind of both finally had this moment like, Hey, I don't have a lot going on. I can dedicate some time to this. You know, yeah. and and I apologize for the listeners, but there is an end date to this at some point. Yeah. We we won't be doing this indefinitely. We we don't have the time, unless you start making really big contributions to our Patreon program. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> unless you start paying my bills, then right? <laughs> on and on and on and on. Um, because I mean, I mean, truthfully, this is this occupies about as much time as a full time job. Yeah. Um. 
you know, it's several days a week where we have, we're blocking off these times for interviews. Um, it's editing, it's promotion, it's all that kind of stuff. So, um, and that's not me bitching. It's just providing context is why we can't do it forever. Yeah. Um, but it's been really fortunate. If I was a religious person, I might think it was, you know, divine intervention that this, this gap in our lives happened at the same time and that we could, we could have the time to work on this. Yeah, man. It's been uh, it's been a really really cool experience to get these first handful of episodes done, and I'm really excited about what's coming down the pipeline. You know, uh, because I'm actually, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to to devalue what we've covered so far, but I'm almost more excited for what's coming up because we're getting to branch out a little bit. Well, we're, we're going to get to learn, and we're going yeah, we're going to get to ask the questions and sit back and then see what happens, you know. Season one has been about remembering. Mm-hmm. You know, it has been about talking to people about stories that we already know happened and getting getting like little details that we didn't know, but for the most part just reminding ourselves yeah. of, of what went down. So and, many, there's so many things that I've just either blatantly forgotten purged or I like, I like oh yeah i remember that you know names so yeah, remembering has yeah. certainly been the theme of of season one for sure absolutely and before we talk too much about what's going on gonna happen in season two which i'm also super excited for mm-hmm. i, I kind of just wanted to take turns and kind of see you know what what we got out what we learned in season one that kind of surprised us mm. um you know, I'll, I'll go first, and that way give you time to think about what you're going to say because I put you on the spot. <laughs> um, I know, I know. Th- you know, w- w- what I learned is that um, what I really brought away from season one was that this experience is far more deep rooted in everybody's hmm. psyche and their personality and their life than I than I even realized that, and it, it was it's for me too. And it's been a, hmm. it's been a realization for me too that. I thought I left Panjway in Afghanistan in 2012. I really did. Because mm-hmm. um, I moved forward. I did flight school. I did this. And I went and I worked. And I did all these great things. Um, and when I did have some um, mental health stuff, which is something I'm willing to talk about in a future episode, I always attributed it to my helicopter crash. Almost ex- exclusively to my helicopter crash. Mm. And the more that I've done this project, I have realized that what I experienced in Panjway has more of an effect on the person that I am today than I realize. And it's the same across the board. Um, you know, we got guys that barely remember what they did last week, but they can give you a village name or they can mm-hmm. tell you the details of a battle that was fought nine years ago in a village. And, and they remember a village name and they remember where they were standing. And they, you know, they remember these visceral experiences and you you don't retain memories like that and experiences like that unless they're foundational. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that was my that, that was really my big takeaway was that um, that experience meant more than I realize it did, not just to everyone but to me as well. Yeah, yeah. I think for me it's it's a very similar feeling. You know, I'll, I'll reflect that sentiment. You know, um, the big takeaway for me is because. When I got out of the army, man, I just, I didn't, I severed my ties really in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. And like I stayed in contact with a few dudes and I'd text here and there and you were determined to be my buddy. So I'm, I'm very thankful for it and that you, you pretty much made it a thing to daily communicate. And now you and I are, you know, we communicate with each other on a daily basis. You're but, my best friend. 
Oh, well, I appreciate you, but you're, you're, you're one of my best friends. Oh, God. <laughs> Through the heart. No, no, you're best of buddies for sure. <laughs> but, yeah, that's um, that's been one of the things for me is is finding value not only in reconnecting with guys and striking up kind of newborn friendships out of the ashes of our past, if you will. Right. right. Not the wax too poetic, but not to only just do that, but to find like a, an intrinsic deep value in the connections that we share, because those connections were forged in incredible circumstances. And so to not only recognize it, which is something that I struggled with for a long time, which is kind of recognizing what happened there and the things that we went through, but to take that to the next step and to find an inherent value in it. I think that's been my biggest takeaway because without doing this, I would not have recognized, like you said, that it is that important for so many guys. Yeah. You know, like everybody has that connection to that time and place. Well, and I'll echo that too. I think, you know, obviously I'd, I'd love, I'd, you know, I love Tom Evans and, and Smothers and everybody that we've had on. Um, they've always been friends. I've always, I mean, I've kept, I've done pretty good about staying in touch with them. Um, but I think I took it for granted. I think I took them for granted. Um, in that I appreciated their role in my life, but I didn't realize how important it was yeah. until I went through this process. And so just like I didn't realize how foundational the entire experience was, I think that like you in my effort to move forward in my life, because I mean, Let's be real. Most people, when they move forward in their life, they leave friends behind. It's just a natural course of things. Yeah, you you never bring all your friends forward. Yeah. Um, so I just treated it like normal. But through this process, I'm like, these are people that I don't want to leave behind. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this, this, this project has strengthened those friendships. Um, but it's also made me realize that they're, they're more than just friendships. It, it, it really is a truly a brotherhood. And to you know, be as cliche as possible. But it, it is. Um, <laughs> yeah. And these people... Not just experience, but the people are foundationally important to me as well. Yeah. And I think one of the things about it is that the ease with which we can just go back into conversation. Yeah. And you can't do that with everybody from these phases in your life. Like there's classmates I've, you know, I've had a great time with that when we meet again, if we ever meet again, which is unlikely, that initial, you know, reconnection would be kind of awkward and clunky. Yeah. But when Smothers came up and he was in my home and I hadn't seen him in eight years, it was just like we were hanging out together again. You know, like it didn't matter. Like all that stuff was just shed and, and who cared? Because we had you had that incredibly, uh, incredibly kind of fundamentally changing experience. And those those foundational experiences that you get to share with each other. And when the mind is more matured, and the spirit and the soul are more matured and, and, and moving along in life and doing things of value, then you can use that foundation to, to let it flourish and bridge into other things that are more meaningful or as equally meaningful as what you went through together Yeah, and allow for, you know, really strong connections, which has been, you know, that that's been another thing for me, buddy. I'm going to show you some love here, Curtis, <laughs> which is, me and you were already really tight yeah. before we started mm-hmm. this. Like you're, you're like, like I said, best of friends. But over the course of doing this, even our friendship has strengthened and become even more solid because not only do I talk to you on the daily, I talk to you on the daily about things that are like really important and truly matter, you know? Yeah. 
And there's a lot of value in that. And that I think that you really key on to something there is that we are finally getting the opportunity to hang out with all these people from our past and talk about like obviously we're talking on the podcast about the deployment and combat mm-hmm. work, but we're getting to talk to them about things that aren't army related yeah which in the past we've never been able to do because our, our connection was so purely army we're now we're finally getting to talk to these people and to talk about topics other than that like oh nursing school or you know your kids, your kids or and, you know yeah. your your fight you know lobbying in congress to be able to have kids and like all these mm. really cool stories that we've gotten to tell that had nothing to do with the army um and it's interesting because part of our interview process is we always do a pre-interview. And the design of that pre-interview, we do it a few days before the actual interview, which are the ones that you see or you hear on the podcast, mm-hmm. um, is to kind of figure out the stories, figure kind of get a feel for the person, develop a structure for the interview itself. But what it really has turned into, at least in season one, is just season one is when we catch up. We get yeah. like... <laughs> You know, the length of our pre-interviews is like four to five hours four for five some hours, people. Yeah, we would and, talk a whole evening away. Yeah, yeah it's, it's basically just a Zoom date with our with our BFF uh, Jill, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, and which makes it really interesting. And make, and I'm really looking forward to season two because yeah. when we start interviewing people that we don't know as well or we don't know at all. You know, mm-hmm. it's gonna be it's gonna be different because we're not. It's gonna be less broing out, um, and less like you know an emotional connection and more of a fact finding mission. Yeah. Um, so I mean, Luke, why don't you tell the listeners about some of the stories that they're gonna get to experience in season two? Yes, indeed. I think the thing that I'm most excited about for what's coming down is that we're not only getting away from our story, but we're getting away from Sparrowingar a little bit. Uh, there's still going to be a lot of Sparrow and Gar in there, but we're getting into people who are in different roles. Like we've got some support personnel coming up. We've got um, uh, SF on the radar for some stuff. We've got all sorts of people that are going to be really interesting to talk to whose contribution to what's going on. Not just at, you know, at Sparrow and Gar a little bit, but Pandre at large. I'm looking forward to that because I'm yeah. looking forward to seeing what other people's were experiences were that were in the, in the, you know, the myopia of being in Sparrowingar is that that's all that matters. Right. But in reality is that two miles down the road, somebody's having a completely different life experience. Yeah. And so to be able to include more of those perspectives into what we're trying to build in terms of the narrative here is it's, it's exciting for me. Yeah. I mean, we're going to finally get to, go down the roads we've kind of alluded to in, in season one, which is, you know, what was it like during Operation Medusa? We're going to talk to some yep. guys that were there. What was it like seizing Sperwingar with, you know, Rusty Bradley and his ODA? We're going to talk about that. You know, what, what was it like, you know, when Robert Bales walked off of his cop and committed a war crime? We're going to talk mm-hmm. to guys that were there. Like, there, there's so many stories that we're going to get to tell. And that's just, you know, in the first half. We haven't even confirmed our guests in the second half. Yeah. You know, we have guys from 123. We have Special Forces guys. We have guys from Canada. We have guys from 2-3 Infantry. We have, um, you know, all kinds. of, and, and then we still have people from Bravo Company 164 that we're talking to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have, you know, medics that we're talking to that were in other platoons. We have our, our first platoon leader. Um, Chris Persons is going to be in season two. Mm. So like it's, what's going to be really neat is we're going to have a mix of, 
you know, waxing nostalgic with our boys, um, but also going on these fact-finding missions uh, to just see what it was like for other people um, yeah. in, in the AO. And I think that's important to the overarching conversation because, like I said, and we talked about like what you went through and what you did and things like that. It's important, man. You know, it's valuable. But there's a shared experience that extends beyond yourself. And when you can look across the way to somebody who has even just the inkling of that shared experience, that's a good connection to make. And it's good to develop the complexities of that web so that you can, you know, you can, you can start to realize that it was, I think it's dumb. I'm sorry. I think it's kind of stupid in our culture that everybody takes a big drive to be part of something bigger than myself. Right. And, And I don't want to demean that, but at the same time, like to, to develop a more robust understanding of what it means to participate in something that can influence people's lives on a level that is so important that they carry it forward in their daily ongoings to the day yeah. they die, essentially. That's a good thing to develop a more matured and more robust understanding of, you know? Yeah. And, and I would say, you know, we receive a lot of messages um, emails and that kind of stuff. And there's so many people that have had experiences in Panjwaid, Sperwangar, I mean, even Zari. I count Zari kind of because it did used to be Panjwaid at one point. So there are people that, <laughs> that there, there are people that literally served in Panjwaid mm-hmm. in a district that is no longer Panjwaid. So, like, it, mm-hmm. um, but you know, my, my greatest regret is we're never going to be able to tell all those stories. You yeah. know, we, we, there's just, there's just no way. Um, and so I'm. I really hope that in our selection of guests, that we can, we can at least get a piece, you know, of everybody's yep. experience. Just a little nugget. Just a little nugget. Um, and, you know, and you know those episodes where we don't know the guests, you know, they may be a little bit more, you know, interviewy, and mm-hmm. and less, you know, you know, waxing poetic Convivial. or whatever. Yeah. Um. But. I'm really looking forward to to sharing these stories. Uh, I think that you guys are going to be really interested in hearing some of these stories. Um, and yeah, I mean we're we're committed. You know, there's going to be a season two. There's going to be a season three. Don't know after that. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Luke Coffee may not be here for a season three. Yeah, I know. we'll see. We'll see. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean it's 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 a problem. It's it's about a week long process to make an episode. So by the time you account for the time of a pre interview and an interview and editing and re editing and uploading, um, you know, it's 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 a process. And I couldn't I certainly can't do more than one a week. So no. um you know, we're pretty limited in how many we can we can knock out. But uh we're very excited. Uh yeah. for the guests that we have already confirmed, for the guests that have said maybe and you know, the the list of people we planned bullying into coming on so <laughs> stay tuned uh season two uh drops soon uh make sure you check our social media page uh the panjoy podcast on facebook and instagram panjoy podcast on twitter um and www.thepanjoypodcast.com for those of you that actually go to websites uh we'll be announcing those launch dates um very soon and we're we're looking forward to sharing that with you. Yeah. And sure. one final thing about season two. You'll notice with season two, we are changing our logo. We have 
Uh, we will be ditching the CIB logo uh, in favor of a combination of uh, a logo centered around the Gustav. Because we love the Gustav <laughs> a lot. Um, B, because it didn't make sense to make an Apache helicopter logo. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> and also a logo that incorporates the Minehound because we really just felt like the, the Minehound and, and the Gustav were really good representations of what the experience was for most people in Panjway. So granted, it's not going to appeal to everybody, but it's not that we're retracting from the CIB logo. The CIB logo means a lot to us because it's, it's how we defined the brand of this Mm -hmm. podcast. This is a, this is a grunts fight. This is a fight about grunts or story about grunts. (laughs) A fight by grunts. A fight by grunts. Um, So it was really important for us to, to categorize this podcast with uh, something as iconic as the CIB. Yeah. Um, so it's not going away permanently. It's just going forward. We wanted something that was a little bit more representative, rep- representative of the entire fight, not just one MOS that participated in that fight. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and that's uh, that's kind of the next evolution of things, man. So we're really excited, and you know, everybody stay tuned, and we really appreciate the support we've gotten so far in season one. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 been uh, we've said this before, but it's been humbling. Um, we are beyond appreciative of the support that we've received. It, it has allowed this to be a professional experience, a professional production, something that you mm-hmm. could listen to 20 years from now and not like cringe at the terrible audio quality. Like everyone's support has made this a historical document, really something that we're going to, when this is done, we package it up, put it on a shelf. And this is something that you can, you can use to, you know, let other people know what it was like. And this is, um, we were very appreciative of everyone that has supported this project financially or through participation or through just sharing, liking, commenting, you know, listening. Uh, we're mm-hmm. beyond, beyond appreciative. For sure. All right. Stay tuned. Season two is coming soon.